Greetings, Dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto Morales here with another episode of The Reality Dysfunction. Today, I have a group of experts in Chicano Latino image and representation ready to chop it up. The recent American Dirt kerfluffle is just one example of how we as a community continue to be defined by the ideologies of settler colonialism and proxy narratives. So a conversation, this should be a conversation less about the actual book, American Dirt, and more about what we are able to do as a community to take back our image and power. One of the ideas being kicked around is a stamp of approval that can be applied to books written by Latino authors. Before we get started, started, let's go around and introduce ourselves. Who wants to go first? Lopez, Southern California educator. Consuelo Frauso, I'm a assistant administrator, instructional coach, and currently the I'm the head of the line of passing out the lunches at my school. I'm the manager. <laughs> so you you got the most important job right now. Cow line. <laughs> I don't even know what it's called, but I made myself the manager. Okay. <laughs> hey everyone, I'm Vanessa Fonseca Chavez. I'm an assistant professor of uh, Chicano and Indigenous Literature at Arizona State. I'm Scott Russell Duncan, a writer and assistant editor at Somelson and Scrito Literary Magazine. Hello, I'm Reiner Delgado. I'm a uh, communication worker and uh, uh, union president for uh, Communication Workers of America. And I'm Daniel Osuna. I'm the former, uh, former international secretary for La Raza Unida in California, and I'm uh, the creator of the 500 Years of Colonization and Resistance in New America, and the creator of uh, the Positive Revolution. Hi. I'm Dan Sosa, I run a community center in Saginaw, uh, where we, during this crisis, we're still running our soup kitchen. The neighborhood I work in is one of the poorest, least educated uh, neighborhoods in the state of Michigan, and thereby one of the or at least educated in the entire country. And we are open. Hi, I'm Dulcinea Lara. I'm talking to you from Las Cruces, New Mexico. I'm a professor at New Mexico State University and director of the new Borderlands and Ethnic Studies um, program here. It's nice to be talking to folks from all over the place. Yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Oscar Rosales Castañeda, a second year MSW student, uh, University of Washington. Uh, currently based out of Seattle, Washington. My name is Jackie. I am a master's social work student here in San Antonio, Texas, and I currently work from home as of now until further notice for a managed care organization. Well, that's it. Those are our truth seekers for today. You all ready? Let's, uh, let's talk about how to take back image and power. Who wants to go first? I'll just jump off the, you know, you had mentioned the American Dirt controversy. And so we've had these conversations in my class. I teach uh, an early 20th century uh, women writers class. And so some of the conversations we've been having in the class is the different kind of strategies we've always had to use to be able to get published and get noticed. And so a lot of these early like Hispana writers were writing for Cosmopolitan magazine, uh, Century magazine, and they were all in careful deliberations about how they could, in very subversive ways, insert critiques about the U.S. system within journals and magazines that were largely read by American white women. And so 
it's part of a longer history. And I think that um, we've always had to kind of look for subtle and subversive ways to do these things. Um, but how can we move that to be sort of more overt action, you know, and how do we move it into this sort of like this sphere where we're non apologetic and we don't have to use these strategies to be able to be heard. I was thinking like, to me, it's like, of course, one of the solutions is for like our own people to, to buy more books and be more involved. Right. And education kind of like, if you don't know, like if you go through our school system, you know, there's only like a handful of books. We aren't teaching very, like bless me, Ultima maybe in the Southwest, but you're not, you're not taught that in like here in Northern California. No, hardly anybody knows who that, who even are, you know, some of our top writers are. And so it's, it's, so education kind of blocks it as well. So it's like, how do we have our own education? How does our, you know, it's like the issue that was in um, like Arizona too. We have to have our own people involved as, and also it gets into this whole, if, if you don't know, you don't know. Right. I think right now, you guys see my, um, my Photoshop face right now, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I just didn't know if I could see me driving. But um, one of the things that I think is so interesting right now, now um, again, I'm in the K-12 setting specifically elementary, preschool through um, sixth grade. So right now is such an opportune time for us in, you know, in the K-12 system because nothing's out there for us for online learning. Some, you know, people have it to different degrees, but right now in my position as a, I'm the assistant admin for instruction at my site, you know, I'm setting it up. Of course, you know, you know, there's, guidance and you know reading everything from the department of education and then how our school district's going to roll it out but as far as right now goes i am going to have a hand in setting that setting that up and how it'll look like while teachers are struggling to get on board and uh learn how to use some of these online tools which you know must i know this varies from school to school and, and district to district and all that but uh, very low tech over here in my in my in my setting yeah i mean this is the kind of thing you see throughout the media like to me it's like um the stories about us as mexican americans or and indigenous people or to reinforce they're like rituals to reinforce this occupation you guys know the whole vasquez rocks that are famous for like science fiction in north of la it's supposed to be an alien landscape. They're the rocks like on Star Trek. They're like that, but they're in like everything. And, and it's like, that's Tiberio Vasquez was a folk hero at Chicano in California who head out, who the most of all the ones weren't more than Joaquin Marietta. He was, he was the most subversive. He was abandoned of course. Right. But he would say things like I, I'm going, if you give me men, if I had like, you know, having like $70,000 and 80 men, I can take that California. And so to me, they they killed like they're fighting aliens on this on this rock that's like place of like a center of of, of Mexican Americanness and fighting like re, they're fighting like you know aliens and whatnot they're always stand-ins for for who we are as indigenous people right it's a core American story they have to have dominance over us because what what is an American otherwise there is the manifest destiny it's the conquest of of, the, of from east to west. And so I think that, that, that's why that, that's the pull for for stories like uh, American Dirt, where they want to have these border bandit like portray as both as, as this dangerous foreigner. And, you know, it kind of gets you see every now and then like books like this, they, they indulge in like, you know, tragic mestizos, dis, um, exoticism, the diseased other and stuff like that. 
and th that's their popularity. And that's why for a lot of writers, they don't write towards that or they don't provide some kind of like social realist titillation of like going through the streets and being street connected, which I'm not trying to downplay the importance of those stories, but often those are the ones that get pushed forward by the mainstream. And that becomes what defines us. And that's what, you know, and that affects the whole entire nation and their view of us. Well, okay. I think the, the I think Lopez was trying to say something, but you're on mute. As I was saying, thanks. I appreciate that. So as I was saying, we uh, we adopted a new curriculum, and there's only one story in that in in our whole curriculum, language arts, for about uh, Chicanos, and that's uh, Francisco Jimenez's uh, story, the circuit, which still puts us as uh, farm workers. You know. Um, it's a great lead-in, you know, it, it's an important story you're able to build on to, you know, Cesar Chavez exposed students to that, but at the end, we're still migrant, we still don't have a home, we're yeah. just bumping around from place to place, trying to find a way. And, you know, I find that um, even now, you know, say five, ten years ago, ten years ago, you, you'd ask students, how many of them have seen Stand and Deliver? You know, they'd all be like, oh yeah, I see, now that's a great movie. You ask students that question, I... I think last time I asked that question, I only had one student who yeah. even who ever knew about the story. I, I myself, as an undergraduate, I want to try to take more space, but like quickly, like I almost left college because I asked because we've had American short story, American literature, American novel, and we had no indigenous people, no uh, Latino people, and certainly no Mexican American people. And I asked a question, why? And they said they told me we have Sonny's Blues, <laughs> you know. Uh, was it by Baldwin, right? And I was like, that is not, we're all not the same. And that's like, uh, you can't tell me that, uh, here's, uh, all, some of these Western writers that uh, they, they, they look down the nose at is like sagebrush fiction are, are better than Sanders Cisneros or, don't, or, or something like this, right? So it's like, like the, it's, our, our education systems are still art for us. And we, you know, we, we need, we're lacking institutions like um, not just perhaps we need like an outside institution to provide things that certainly I had to go find my own. One of the things I want to mention just, you know, your Lopez was talking about, you know, not everyone seeing stand and deliver. And, you know, I'm thinking about all those very like classic films that we, that we watched growing up, you know, um, I showed my students blood in blood out about two semesters ago. And it was interesting to kind of see some students respond with, um, messages that they felt uh, triggered by the content in the film and for me it was really it was interesting to reflect on one because I don't remember what it was like for me seeing that film for the first time and so for students seeing it from the first time you know people that are that are veterans um, you know LGBTQ community watching that film for the first time I had to also put myself in check in terms of you know what is it that we have to warn students about and so this for me was very sort of two-sided it was one, yes, like we do have to be very cautious of those sorts of things. But then the other side of it is like, you can't talk about the Chicano community without talking about systems of violence and power and, you know, those sort of things. So it's like, how do we, how do we approach these topics in a way that, you know, reaches the students? Um, but then also thinking about new, new media, right? New films. Um, you know, I just finished watching Hentification, which I think is amazing so far. I'm looking forward to the next season, but it's like, how can we how can we get them to appreciate some of that earlier, those earlier attempts at like Chicano media representation, and then also bring it more currently with things that are coming out on Netflix and other films that are that are more reflective of their 
contemporary experiences. Well, to me, a lot of those movies that you're mentioning, like like you're saying, it's the representation. Even and a lot of times they're imperfect, right? And then and the other problem is that a lot of like Chicano like art and media whatnot, it, it bears like the brunt of like it bears so much whenever it gets seen. It's like you have to represent for everybody, and and most most work will fail under that scrutiny. It's it's a scrutiny that that the mainstream doesn't doesn't bear. Uh, or like uh, on the road, on the road's racist, uh, I, and you know, and it's like you never hear about it, and and everyone loves it. It's boring as racist by someone very privileged who who who's slumming, and it, it doesn't get the same amount of scrutiny as like like Blood In Blood Out's movie. But you see what I'm saying? Because they have to bear certain stuff, and I agree. Like far as like like as I didn't exactly grow up in LA, but like I have family that live that lives there, and I grew up in San Diego and North Texas. I felt represented by Blood In Blood Out, you know, a certain bit. And I also have a white father, who's my guess, my name on there, you know, who who was a Texan and yelled at me, "Tell these Mexicans to get to back to work, right?" And so, I kind of lived that first five minutes out, when, uh, you know. Um, but I can see the problems. I think if for students, if you show them like there's a context, like there's there's this representation versus like what they've shown they show about us in the mainstream or especially in the past, the greaser stereotypes. And the other, well, one more thing maybe is like I, I recently like was it last year I helped teach a class on a Latino um, film and none of the students knew Blood In Blood Out they didn't know um, what's the one about Richie Valens. The Bamba. Bamba didn't know the Bamba, and my grandma took me to see that like three, four times when it came out. And it's like, yeah. So it's like they, it, it's, it's come again to like the lack of education, right? And lack of like, it's not necessarily like you're super educated if you see La Bamba, but like just in general, they didn't know who Brown Buffalo was. You know, that it goes across the board. And these, you know, I wouldn't say these students are, that's not all of them were like in the humanities and whatnot, but still there's like, there's, there's a definite lack. Well, you know, I, I, to me, I just wanted to say, I remember as a kid going to go see La Bamba um, here in Saginaw and every single, it felt like every single Mexican in Saginaw oh, yeah. was at the same showing on the same day. And I just remember thinking how powerful that was as a kid. And I was just reminiscing about that last night with a cousin of mine in Texas. And the same thing, I had the same feeling when they had um, Bless Me Ultima. And this was only, what, 10 years ago that that movie came out. Um, but there's this website, tug.com. And you can pretty much sell tickets online and they'll show it at your movie theater. And there's a lot of independent um, documentaries and movies like that um, that are also Chicano related. If you ever want to look at that website, take a look at it. But it was the same thing when that movie, um, when they had that showing there, it felt like every Mexican in Saginaw was at that showing. So it just shows the hunger for culture um, when it comes to, you know, these little isolated communities that we have in Michigan. Yeah, I think they're doing similar things in Lansing with uh, uh, different movies. I know, like with Coco and stuff like that, they've done special showings at <clears throat> Celebration, yeah. you know, that, that they basically, I don't know if it's called Chartered, but, you know, they just they book it and then uh, different uh, organizations promote it and try to get it attended, so. Yeah. There's a documentary called A Place to stand by Jimmy Baca about his life, how he learned, he learned to write poetry in, in prison and how the prison system failed him. And, and you know, actually was, you know, bad. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. If you ask them to show up, they'll, he'll, they'll, they'll show up. To me, it seems like that there needs to be uh, easy access to it, you know, 
to titles for teachers, for, you know, when I look at it, um, the curriculum is not there, it's not given to us, so we have to supplement. And I noticed that even here in Southern California, right, a couple of years ago, I took a group of students, some of my middle school students to uh, UCR, to University of Riverside. And what was so interesting is so many, I think I had exposed more of my students to some of this literature, some of these films, than some of the actual UCR students who were giving us the campus tour. They did not see that, those films, they did not read those stories until they got to college. And I think just the, the, the interest is there. The students, you, saw, you talk anything about Chicanos, Latinos to students, and they're not used to seeing it, you know, and they, they want it. But I think a lot of times educators want those, those resources, but they're not as easily accessible. You know, I know uh, Soto, you know, the writer Soto, he's got so many books, but they're not available to us, you know, so how do we do that? And then talking about films, you know, maybe what we need to do is we need to come up with little short uh, mini documentaries that we create ourselves, you know, have them available online for educators and students to be able to access on their own and watch them just like you go onto YouTube and you look up a video on Pitbull or whoever, you know, um, and they're able to watch those videos. They need those accessible. They're able to go to them, plant that seed, I guess. You might say the literary magazine I'm part of, it's called Somos en Escrito. It's, uh, the editor is Amano Rendon, the author of um, uh, Chicano Manifesto, and, and it's free, it's online, and we've been going on since 2009. And uh, a couple ISDs are using us as a resource. I mean, we got, it's not just poetry, it's essays and various, so it's out there. Might also be cool to, you know, look for some grant opportunities that might, you know, enable us to buy these books to introduce them into schools. Um, I don't know where those sources are right now, but I think uh, anything that's sort of like community, you know, culturally based would certainly be a good place to look at for, you know, identifying what maybe five key pieces of literature might be, or even, you know, purchasing anthologies that you might be able to use within the classroom. I mean, at the university level, it's not, it's not an issue. Um, you know, the classes that we teach give us kind of open range to bring in whatever we want. So, but I imagine for K through 12 systems, it's a little bit more difficult. Uh, let's see, I'm gonna do that, see what happens. Sorry, Maybe. I was trying to, I was actually trying to share a link, you know, when you guys were um, in, and there's this uh, website called Storyline Online. And I think, I think, I think it's something like this would be kind of cool. I guess it's just more about where do we go to find these things? So this is, um, you know, it's all children's books. I don't know if you can see it now, but they're narrated by people like, I don't know, it's like some screen actors guild or something. But I guess if we were talking about sharing stories, sharing, you know, anthologies or, you know, children's books or whatever but they would be you know with a focus of course on on our people okay dulcinea you were going to say something a second ago yeah this is my first zoom meeting it's so surreal um so i'm figuring out all the technology stuff but it's really um interesting and evocative to hear all of your strategies and the work that you're all doing i'm in southern new mexico las cruces um 35 minutes from El Paso. 
Um, we consider ourselves borderlands, but some people who live here don't consider yeah. themselves in the borderlands. Um, I'm from here. I was born and raised on a farm. And I went to Michigan State for undergrad and got really politicized and radicalized by all those incredible people at Michigan State University. Um, and then I went to Berkeley for my master's and PhD, always with the idea that I would come back to New Mexico. And I've been a professor here for 15 years. I'm actually, um, yeah, I can't believe it. But I'm thinking about what New Mexico means in this conversation. Um, this is, I've been working on creating ethnic studies here for 15 years um, and really actively for three years. So I'm hearing what you're talking about in terms of access to information and, and representation, not even like a curriculum. Um, and it's, it, every day is a, a very particular kind of battle here, like from what our museums exhibit um, to, street signs um i feel like it's really archaic but it's it's really evidence of of the, the the good job that folks did of colonizing this space so i'm really excited on two fronts one i'm starting an ethnic studies program here um that's going to look really different i think just because of where we are and um that's exciting to me actually and, and secondly um we have a court mandated ruling for i i call it um, rehumanizing our curriculum in a sustainable way nice. um, but to say it's Chicano studies or Native American studies like that's too radical right so they're calling it culturally relevant which is fine but interestingly calling on me as an expert to work with educators um, and I'm like flat out it's an ethnic studies education like that's my training that's the decolonizing imperative re-indigenizing work like we're in New Mexico how can we not talk about indigeneity it's ridiculous um, so it's not that we're behind. I just think it's intentionally this, we're in a kind of a time warp. Um, and I would say that, you know, I can't really talk about strong um, allies at NMSU right now. I have had them. They tend to leave to California. Mm. Um, I can count seven colleagues that have left, like, see you later, New Mexico. Um, so this is really an excellent resource and it's nice to meet you all because these conversations are not being had in this way here. Um, but when I'm hearing you talk about the younger generation and how can we turn them onto both the classics and contemporary um, representations, whether it be film or literature, um, just so much is changing. You know, we had yeah. uh, Chica Chicanisma here on campus um, who is part of Bitter Brown Femmes, and uh, my student, you could see the students in the audience were like absorbing it, um, as sarcastic as they are and, and fantastic. Like, they're pushing the question about expanding Mexican Americanness and like, what is Chicano? And like, just really pushing questions that I think in my generation that was foundational. And like, like you, the word water, right? Like, Todd, you talk about like, that was just everything you could absorb and so now they're just yeah. like what is that even right and so my students haven't even had those foundational moments uh, on a mass scale they can get one class here and there but then they're listening to this uh, duo talking about like that's old shit like we're pff, that's ridiculous you know and if those old people want to get grumpy that's fine so it was really fascinating for me to sit in that audience and wonder what is everyone thinking about this, you know? So um, I think it's a particular moment and I think new productions 
are really exciting um, and how do we connect those to their predecessors is a cool question. Yeah, I totally agree, sister. I think that fortunately I get to have conversations like this quite a bit with different groups of people. And, you know, the one thing that I've really come to see over the past year, I mean, there's not really any sense fighting about the word Chicano. I think that it's an important word that historically it will always have a place. I think and I think that it's it's on its way out, you know, and so what we really have to do, and I just want to say that I don't think the word Latinx is on its way in. I think that there is a very strong undercurrent really that started in the in the 1990s and I, I, I think it really started with the Zapatistas and with that whole movement and the way that impacted the youth at that time, and that it's really shifting towards indigeneity. I mean, And that's not to say that everybody thinks that they're indigenous or anything like that. But I mean, I think that word will replace the word Chicano and I think it will do it in very short order. But I think that that's a good thing because I think that that word is much more expansive and the identity that goes behind it, behind being indigenous is much more expansive than the the, um, identity of simply Chicano. So it's, um, go ahead, brother. I just think, like, uh, yeah, I mean, I see a lot of young people who, who don't use Chicano and not quite sure what it, and don't know what it means. Yeah. There's, and, you know, I do accept indigenous identity as well. But to me, there, I mean, because we're in a colonial state and, bec- and what colonial has done, uh, co- colonialism has done, even that there's confusion in that. What indigeneity? What, who, what people do you belong to? Like, I'm a, I'm a mass of several indigenous groups, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like both Mesoamerican, uh, California, and New Mexican, and so and, and throw throw in the uh, conquerors with my white father and my and whatever Spanish blood I have, and so to me there's like there's still confusion, and this confusion, like we we have a dent, we have like two colonial occupations to deal with to like to de- when we decolonize, and I think we're like what we have is confusion, you know, like no matter what. So to me it's like. The, the labels and everything it's like like even trying to tell some gringos like what what to call them like why you should say this or that say whatever groups it's 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 getting more difficult some people don't like this label some people don't like that label is what i'm saying so i think y'all just open up a can of worms there just in terms of of identity um sure. you know i think that what i see a lot within professional organizations is a push to to reconnect to indigenous identity, but Mexican indigenous identity. And that's very complicated for, you know, folks who have longstanding roots in New Mexico or other parts of the Southwest. Um, Knox had their annual conference, or the National Association for Chicano Chicano Studies had their conference in Albuquerque a few years ago. And Mm -hmm. the theme was something tied to like indigenous Chicano communities. And I thought, hell yeah, this is gonna be a shit show because it was gonna, I thought, I was really excited about the potential for it opening up real conversations about what that means in the context of New Mexico. Me too. And um, that didn't happen. And I was, was a little frustrated about it. Um, I think that New Mexico is a, presents a particular context in which to talk about those things. Um, one of the really important things that I heard last year from Jennifer Dennett-Dale, who's a, she's a historian at the University of New Mexico, is that so many, so often Chicano studies starts using this word indigeneity or indigenous heritage, but they're not actually engaging with indigenous scholars. And I think that is something that we need to be more careful about. 
And we also need to be more careful about, you know, a lot of what I teach is, you know, pre-Chicano movement type of literature mm -hmm. and the way that we reintroduce that literature right now and thinking about how anti-Indigenous that literature really was and the need to have those like very real conversations about our own problematic history with, you know, these topics and um, how we're carefully approaching them now. Oh, yeah. um, and then also admitting that we get shit wrong, you know, and that in, in a lot of ways we've been wrong about this. And so, you know, I think that those are all important things to think about. I also think that that's really important. I think that um, part of rethinking identity is, uh, or thinking about how it is that we reclaim or we think about ourselves as indigenous people is also uh, understanding that that can't really happen within a reform setting. There's no way for us to reform the the system. And so thinking about, you know, other anti-colonial writers who have faced similar situations where they have lots of different uh, nations or uh, tribes or whatever, I prefer the word nations, who've had this umbrella system set over the top of them, you know, while recognizing those differences, also understand that that history, right, that colonialism had uh, disrupted, it's not really going to return. Um, I mean, we can't, we can't go back to who we were 500 years ago. We can return to history as a people, right? But exactly what that return to history looks like, I don't know. I'm just saying, I think that that's really a big part of, of that conversation. And I think that's also how we, we move it away from reform. And I think that's how it becomes more of a, of a subversive uh, type of conversation, right? Because what we're saying is, regardless of who or what we're descended from, we're descendants of indigenous people because we are. Now, we might not know who they are for who that specific group was for a whole bunch of reasons. And maybe we do. And if we do, that's good. And if we don't, it's also good too, because what we recognize is that we have a stake in, in that. I'll leave that at that. I'm hoping that with whatever comes out of this crisis, I don't know what to call it, maybe regeneration, you know, here in New Mexico, during the legislative session that just passed, there was overt distinction between Native American education and Hispanic education. And those come with dollars. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I think the conversation amongst, you know, people is very different than what we have to engage in that's so nasty with regard to resources. And so one of the things yeah. I've been talking to folks about is, you know, when we talk about equity and we have these beautiful, you know, posters and <laughs> colorful PowerPoint presentations, like equity is about redistribution. Like it's about, it's, it's, it's not pretty. Um, and so I'm, I think systems as we knew it, economic, educational, et cetera, they, they're, they're crumbling right now for various reasons. And so I think it's upon us who are thinking about this question of indigeneity on the human sense to figure out, I don't want to use the word palatable, but like hearable ways to talk about indigeneity that don't just automatically cut off the conversation. Because I hear what you're saying, Vanessa, that it's a really touchy conversation. Um, yeah. And at the same time, like for me to assert that I'm Apache in New Mexico is like such a contentious thing. And now that we've traced Loose got you know loose back to you know, our great 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 grandmother of seven generations ago who's Apache Mescalero. Now I'm claiming it, 
but I feel weird that it took that kind of like authentic, you know, government document to say like she existed and I'm Apache, yeah. um, especially here in New Mexico. But I'm thinking that I've, I feel like I've gotten a second PhD by being in New Mexico and trying to do ethnic studies because it's so challenging. Um, but when I say palatable or, or, or hearable, um, I was trained by very like dogmatic, orthodox Chicano studies folks from back in the day and like yeah. really, you know, just a different range. And here I feel like just to have those conversations with community and then turn and have a conversation with my chancellor, um, I feel like I've, I've figured out various ways to navigate the question of representation um, that I'm grateful for, but we're so on a different plane than, than other places. Um, but I do think that we're not going to return to systems as they were. And that opens up a possibility for talking about indigeneity, both respectfully, but also like adamantly. Yeah. I, I also want to talk um, adamantly about my identity as an indigenous person. And sometimes people are open and other times it's like a, a slammed door and um, it's up to us to figure out, do we want to open the door? Do we want to make a new campaign? Um, yeah. It's not like a new work, but I, I feel like it's, it's gonna have to happen at some point um, in conversation and in respectful ways, but also like, yes, this is who we are, right? How much, how much pushback are you getting from like Hispano families like about like, because the old narrative is nobody wants to be Indian. We're all Spanish. I have family and more, <laughs> by the way. That for sure exists. It's, um, that's, it's that's, like, we uh, got, like, people, we're driving up. My uncle's, like, more indigenous looking than I am. And it's like, uh, like, roll around the uh, <laughs> the caravan. The Indians are coming. <laughs> it's just like, uh, you know, yeah. I have a Apache family as well. And so it's just like, but the people that are more correspondent types are like, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that they're indigenous. That for sure exists. And also like here near the border, people don't want to be Mexican, you know? So I think it's a, I wouldn't call it a crisis. Like people are unaware by design. And when I teach like by week two, my students are like, oh my, give me everything. You know, like, what do I read? What do I watch? What do we talk about? Um, and so it's not a matter of the will isn't there. It's just like, there's like, literally like three people on campus doing this work. So it's exhausting, but, but for sure there's a lot of pushback. So that's why they're talking about culturally relevant mm -hmm. education. And it's very soft, like it's really soft compared to what we're talking about here. But at the same time, if they're seeking me out to train yeah, educators, like they don't know what they're doing, right? Okay. So there's a lot of, no one knows about this. So I have like free reign almost. It's, it's really, it's strange. I agree with you about the students. And when they're confronted with the material, how, how desperately they want more. I agree with that 100%. You know, and I think to me, it's about reinventing ourselves. That, that That's kind of the question that I see, you know, um, because sometimes it, I, I see that, you know, we get stuck like, oh, no, así no se hace. That's not the way it's done, right? And even I see it not happening now. Like, I know we've all seen, probably seen the Loterias coming out, right? Mm -hmm. And you have like Selena, you know, in, in the Aztec stands and you have all these different things. And I think that's part of what it is and what needs to happen is that reinventing ourselves for too long has been stuck like you know tradition says it's done this way it's done this way but that's not where we're at you know we there and i think that's where we have to learn from from our uh african american brothers and sisters right 
they're so good at that, continuously reinventing themselves. And I think for us, unfortunately, sometimes we've been stuck because we're trying to, maybe because our ties uh, to a certain extent haven't been so clear that we're always trying to stay connected. And then we lose that focus on reinventing ourselves. And, you know, that in itself, I think is part of what uh, younger kids need to see that because I agree. You know, I see that even, you know, with middle school students, you start exposing them to some of those things. You know, you were talking about Chicano. So when I show, uh, when I show uh, walkout, you know, and they're at that part, hey, Chicano power. Dude, they're doing the same thing. Chicano, you know, they walk out of there, you know, class is over and they're still doing that. Chicano power, you know, they've never heard it. They've never had that opportunity to say that about themselves and, and you know, to raise that fist like that. And it, it's there. We need that opportunity to reinvent ourselves. You know, I was thinking too, to the Lucineo's point, I think that, you know, when students in my class, you know, ask like, what is Chicano, whatever, you know, and I always joke and I tell them, I was like, I didn't realize I was Chicano until I was about 24, right? And we can probably remember these sort of epiphany moments where we, where we realize like, fuck, like power and like, you know, my, my position in this society is different and this is why, and you know, all these different things. And, you know, having that moment of looking at a family document that, that shows that you are something else, right? Able to do, to come into that and that being like a really urgent moment in terms of your, you know, own identity is really interesting um and to scott's point earlier just you know i always have when i tell people you know i i do oral histories all this other stuff and um you know i inevitably have people say hey i just did my dna and i found out i'm 40 percent native american and you're like whoa and you have to have these really complicated conversations with people about like why is it that you're 40 percent native and you're not part of pickery's pueblo or whatever right and those mm -hmm. people are because yeah. You want to assess people's real investment in wanting to find out that information. I mean, one one is to say like, okay, yes, this is my heritage, right? Because a DNA test said so, but that doesn't give one a reason to fully claim and envelop themselves in a culture and heritage that they have otherwise forgotten or you know, sort of pushed off to the side for so long. And so, you know, when I think about careful engagements, right? I mean, what is what does that mean to find out, right? What does it mean to to the moment where you figure that out and then what do you do with it right and i'm at the point right now where i'm like yes but i'm also thinking about you know the world that my grandmother grew up in where she would say things like no seas india or like you know all these really sort of disparaging things against indigenous people where she also simultaneously was a seamstress for the wife of the president of the navajo nation right so it's just like this is so, it's so interesting just to think about how all of these things kind of come together and then what we do with those pieces, um, you I, know, and everybody's responses are our, oh, sorry, different. I think when we have to place ourselves and we have to seek, and when we seek connections, we have to, you know, like acknowledge where we're coming from and, um, and, not, and not deny, I don't think you can't deny like any of your parts or connections or, or like, and also like there's reasons why, like my grandmother similarly, she wouldn't even talk about like, I mean, like she would take her, my mother and her and her other kids to visit her uncle on the reservation, but she wouldn't even like, like college came around. I'm not, a guy named Scott Duncan's not going to get a uh, Chicano, uh, Mexican American, Latino uh, a scholarship. Right. So I'm like, what, I need to get a tr tribal enrollment. And she wouldn't like give me any information or anything. And so it's like, it was for that generation. It's like a shameful thing. You don't want to be part of, part of anything like that. Consuelo raised up her hand. 
Yeah, I was going to share with you when I was just talking. I mean, I just, like I'm just going to keep going back and saying the same thing because now's the opportunity. So many people are looking for resources, and um, this what I'm sharing right here is just you know this doesn't have something like this. You know, you find somebody. This is a credible resource for me as an elementary person, school to home, and just someone who's gone through and these things have, have vetted some of these things for us. So I guess this would be great. And if you keep looking, you know, at the screen, there's just like, oh, this would be great if we had something like this for what we're, we're talking about here today. There you go. I'll stop sharing that one. Uh, Vanessa, I just want to um, put a check on what you said. I thought that that was uh, I thought that was very good, sister. So, like word preach that that's that's what's up. Um, we're we're almost to an hour, oh. so we should probably um, we should probably think about how to uh, wrap up. For those of you who haven't said anything, because without pointing out people, there are some people on here who have not said anything. But you don't have to, but we would love to hear the dulcet tones of your voice. Um, <laughs> you know, do you got any last uh, thoughts or words, uh, Brother Osuna? I know you've been on this trail a long time. No, I don't have anything to say. I was just listening in. Um, just a, it's a pleasure to meet everybody. I mean, you have a diverse group here, and so I was really happy with it. I learned right. a lot today. Thanks, bro. Yeah. Thank Oscar, weigh in from Seattle, homie. How's it? How's it going over there? It is a struggle. It is boring as shit. Uh, pardon my language. Um, That's yeah, okay. Was, this is a square free. Uh, it's a swear zone, not a square free zone. Yeah. It's a swear zone. Because yeah, I, I think we were the, we were the first major city to like be on lockdown. So yeah. So it's like after yeah after week one, I was like, damn. Okay, it's it's getting real. Yeah. And then once other cities started shutting down, I was like, okay. This is not looking good. <laughs> yeah, but that aside, um, yeah, I mean, thanks for inviting me to the group. A lot of the material absolutely resonates with me, uh, with me as well. Like the utilization of like digital tools, which is going to be absolutely critical as well in uh, teaching and, and instruction. And also in making things like a lot more accessible as well. So um, like locally here, we've done some work with, with the University of Washington's Department of History. So this was way back in the double zeros. So um, yeah, it kind of feels like a, like a different lifetime ago. But, uh, but yeah, but we did some work with the Seattle Civil Rights and Labor History Project. Uh, we digitized documents. We also created uh, like a set of like, a, like narrative histories and also incorporated oral history interviews as well. So... Yeah, so I was like, okay, cool. That's going to be pretty, you know, that's going to be a pretty nice project. Uh, a few years later on, our director says, yeah, um, there's there's a few school districts who are utilizing our, you know, uh, our project for, you know, for teaching history. And I was like, oh, shit, sweet. Yeah, so I mean, so the possibility is always there. So, yeah, find different ways and different mechanisms for, like, uh, synthesizing that information into, like, digital, uh, digital sources. Besides that, yeah, I'm still, yeah, I'm still kind of like marinating on uh, on a few uh, topics as well. And the question of indigene indigeneity um, also kind of resonates with me as well here in the Northwest. As uh, you know, as um, I mean, we have like a lot of like uh, native tribes in the area, in the area, 
and also with uh, that internal discourse, like within the so-called Latinx community, you know, as far as like, you know, which image is being, uh, you know, portrayed like most prominently, right? So like when you look at uh, like a television newscast, when you look at magazines, you know, what's the visage that, you know, that represents our community? That's part of the conversation that, uh, that I've definitely been having with, uh, with my peers. And I mean, especially so um, within the School of Social Work as well, because observing the shifting demographics here uh, in Western Washington, we can definitely like uh, predict that the Latino presence is going to like, you know, like double in size is it has the last uh, uh, two decades. So like the best way to to train future future social workers is to to make sure that they don't like do anything to damage our communities, right? So, yeah. And uh, just that point. All right. Okay. Well, that's what we got for today. We'll be back again tomorrow or we'll be back real soon. Uh, in the meantime, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, and uh, wash we hope hands. everything's good. <laughs> All right. <laughs>